and welcome to EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm your host, Prudence Robertson. Elections and life. Nikki Haley and former President Donald Trump will face off in the GOP primary in South Carolina. Analysis on what it could mean for the sanctity of life at the polls. And we are on the ground during an abortion day at Planned Parenthood and give you an up-close look at the challenges pro-lifers face just outside facility doors. Somebody came to me and said, I want to give you $30,000 to start a maternity home. And I said, okay, God, I'm listening. The incredible story of how one maternity home began and the way it provides family, faith, and a future for new young mothers. We're following a new ruling by the Alabama Supreme Court declaring embryos are children. Three couples whose frozen embryos were destroyed in an accident at a fertility clinic filed a wrongful death case, which made its way to the state Supreme Court. The court's ruling could impact access to in vitro fertilization in the state. Catholic social teaching prohibits IVF due to the massive destruction of embryonic life and the treatment of a child as a product, not a gift. We'll have more in-depth coverage on this developing story next week. And South Carolina holds its GOP primary this Saturday. Presidential hopeful Nikki Haley goes head-to-head -head with former President Donald Trump in her home state. Despite Haley winning back-to-back -back gubernatorial elections in South Carolina, she still trails Trump by more than 30%, 30 points, according to recent polls, including one by Winthrop University. More than 3 million South Carolinians are registered to vote. Party affiliation is pretty evenly split, with 44% of voters registered as Democrats and 44% of Republicans, another 10 are unaffiliated. You don't have to be a registered Republican to vote in the South Carolina GOP primary. It's open to all voters so long as you did not vote in the Democratic primary. South Carolina's Republican Governor Henry McMaster proudly signed pro-life legislation in May of last year, limiting abortions after a heartbeat is detected, including exceptions for rape and incest, among others. We're joined now for analysis by Marjorie Dannenfelser, president of Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America. Marjorie, thanks for being with us. Good to have you as always. Just last week, former President Trump reiterated that if he's reelected, he'd be amenable to signing a law that limits abortions at 16 weeks gestation on the federal level. This would likely stop less than 10% of abortions nationwide. Most take place earlier in pregnancy. Um, but I'm curious, do you think this is likely to stick, this, this statement that he's made? Yeah, I think it's reported that he that he likes that, that four months he sees as a reasonable federal minimum standard. And while it is not satisfying, of course, to pro-life people to uh, have such a modest place to be, um, where a place to draw a line, there there is the reality that we uh, that we are living in a country that includes California, Illinois, New York, right. uh, who will not who will only be satisfied with abortion up into the end, and we're also living in a country that's Alabama, um, Mississippi, South Carolina. So it is a compromise for sure. And when you think about it, really, yes, it is very modest. However, the amount the number of abortions that would be committed. Um, or number of children actually that would be saved are, uh, would be about the um, 
death, the um, murder rate in the in the country as a whole, we would save more around the same number of people. So it certainly matters. And we definitely don't want to uh, overreach. We don't want to underreach. But what I know about President Trump is that uh, that he is committed to um, something that, in his words, that the country as a whole can embrace. Sure. Uh, I think that's reasonable. Sure, right. And, and what can you say about Nikki Haley's record on abortion? I know in the past she's been a leader on life. Recently, she said there's no room to legislate on abortion at the federal level. Well, I think she's wrong. There absolutely is. On every issue that that we are facing that is difficult in this country, including immigration, Social Security, Medicare, all those issues, yes, it's possible that we don't have a filibuster-proof majority in the, in the Senate. But what we do have to do and what we require of our leaders in the pro-life movement is that they lead, that they build the argument, that they build consensus, that they communicate directly and well to the American people so that we get to a place where it's very likely that a lot of us won't be satisfied about where we land, but at least we could land at a federal minimum standard, something that is, you know, that we will do better on later. We allow states to be as strong as they possibly can be. So I object to her characterization of the pro-life movement's efforts to come to some national minimum standard, saying that it's unrealistic. She's applying a test to that issue that she doesn't apply to any other issue. Mm. And it seems, Marjorie, that after South Carolina's primary, we could have our candidate. So tell me more about the national impact that this weekend is going to have. Well, it's huge. I mean, this is the last possibility for her in her own state. He's won every early primary. Um, it's been a contest that has eliminated everybody else but her. And um, and I think she made a mistake on the abortion issue. She mm. could have she could have been very different. But the reality is she's losing two to one. Uh, and it's also important to see why she will lose. Fifty six percent of of uh, Republicans in South Carolina want all or most abortions outlawed. Um, and so it's important. She's been very vocal, saying that she isn't going to be doing anything. Right. So I think it'll be important to see why. It'll be a message moving out of South Carolina, I believe. And then we will have uh, probably we're going to have a Biden-Trump contest once again. So here we go. Yeah, it should be very interesting. Marjorie, before I let you go, I know SBA will have boots on the ground campaigning in key states between now and November. Where are you focusing the majority of your efforts? We will be in every Senate and presidential battleground, eight states, ranging from Arizona, Montana, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Georgia, uh, and Pennsylvania. So eight battlegrounds will reach 4 million voters at their doors. We'll reach 10 million overall with other types of voter communications. This is huge. We The pro-life movement could be shut down completely um, by the Women's Health Protection Act. They've promised that's what every voter we talk to in every battleground will be about that and preventing the other side who's on offense now from eliminating every pro-life protection in the country. Marjorie, thanks for your analysis and thanks as always for joining us. Thank you, Prudence. Three abortion clinics are in operation within South Carolina. We went to one of them on an abortion day. Those are the days abortion staff are present to perform surgical abortions or write a prescription for chemical abortion. We bring you a firsthand look at the work of the pro-life movement there and the challenges they face. Take a look. Any opportunity to interact with them, let them know there's free ultrasounds, there's pregnancy care teams, and, you know, what do they need? What do they need? We will, we will provide it, sure. that there's not, there's really no reason to do this. A choice between life and death.
Perhaps nowhere can we see the struggle so clearly as outside an abortion facility. Fridays are surgical abortion days at the Planned Parenthood Charleston Health Center. We were there on February 9th. Since 2020, the rate of abortions in South Carolina has steadily increased. But in 2023, a heartbeat law was signed by the governor, which could impact the rate of abortion moving forward. Right now, according to the latest data, about 1,000 children lose their lives to abortion here in the state per month. Every week on Fridays, pro-lifers stand outside this Planned Parenthood and try to speak to the women who have scheduled appointments. The individuals who regularly pray and peacefully protest outside the clinic are involved in the local Catholic community in many ways. The thing about Charleston is it's a multitude of resources in pregnancy. 40 Days for Life, Sidewalk Advocates for Life, which I'm part of, and then we have a ministry of trying to get the abortion workers to quit. I'm the state life director in South Carolina for the Knights of Columbus. We have pregnancy care teams. Um, we also have walking with moms in needs through the parishes that we partner with. People trained with the national group Sidewalk Advocates for Life are present each week. Their group takes pride in being a, quote, loving and law-abiding presence on the sidewalk. Despite their best efforts, a chance to talk to the new mothers is rare, as Planned Parenthood escorts use their bodies to block anyone on the outskirts of the premises. And our window to do so is very small. Right. We have a very small window. Um, sometimes we're able to talk to someone else who's in the car. Um, we also know from women previously that they do hear us inside. But it was clear to us while we were there that women who arrive at Planned Parenthood aren't always decided on having an abortion. In fact, we saw one woman think twice about heading into her scheduled appointment. That's because a pro-life mobile clinic was parked just across the street. I said, well, we're here. We can uh, give you the free tests and the ultrasound. She said, oh, I'm here for the other thing. I said, well, what if... We could help you and keep your baby and support you, give you rent, clothes. I said, would you mind talking to our nurse? And we have it. She's in. So she's That's in amazing. There. She saw one of our sidewalk advocates um, just waving her with a friendly smile come this way. She saw an invitation. The nurse, Chris, is doing an intake, basically um, getting to know her needs, what's happening with her. And then she will, if the woman's in agreement, will give her a free pregnancy testing, uh, free ultrasound, and life-affirming choices. Though we're not at liberty to share the details of this woman's story, what we did witness is that instead of parking in Planned Parenthood parking lot, she parked across the street and walked inside the pro-life mobile clinic. She stayed inside speaking with the registered nurse on board for about 20 minutes. And I actually told her, um, you know, we would help her with adoption, and I even told her... My family would take her baby and my sons would raise her child for her. Those 20 minutes were quiet and filled with prayer. The sidewalk counselors clearly believe they're in a spiritual battle to save unborn souls who come into their vicinity. This young new mom did briefly enter the Planned Parenthood after speaking with Nurse Chris. She came out minutes later with a single piece of paper. It seems that the young woman left the clinic that day without an abortion. Hello, mama. <laughs> Thank you, Lord Jesus. It happened. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Woo. Yeah. While we were there, we heard concerns from pro-lifers about the enforcement of South Carolina's heartbeat law, which allegedly limits abortion statewide when the baby in the womb is six weeks or older. However, throughout the morning that Friday, women walked in and out for appointments, some of them visibly pregnant. 
we got this heartbeat law. We're going to reduce uh, abortions maybe by as much as 80 percent hasn't happened. We've been car counting. We've been watching the traffic. While national pro-life groups like Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America have commended South Carolina's governor and attorney general for enacting the heartbeat law, the local pro-life community in the state seems to have many unanswered questions. So you think it's pretty possible that this Planned Parenthood might be defying the law? I do. My background is a lawyer. So I say, great, it's a law, but where are the teeth? Is it, is it a paper tiger? What are the consequences? Who's monitoring? Despite setbacks and uncertainties about enforcement of the law, these pro-lifers are determined to soften the hearts of these moms and the workers inside the Planned Parenthood. Alan Terry told us he even sends the workers flowers from time to time. Being here is all that matters and to catch that one young lady to help her that one moment in her life to change to change something that she would regret forever. We reached out to the South Carolina Attorney General, Alan Wilson, about enforcement of the heartbeat law. He said in part, quote, if there are concerns about this law being violated, folks should immediately contact local law enforcement agencies for investigation. He went on to say that he will work with law enforcement partners to defend the right to life. To talk more about what we saw in Charleston at the Planned Parenthood, we're joined now by Missy Martinez-Stone, president and CEO of the Center for Client Safety. Missy, thanks for being here. Let's set the stage first. Tell me briefly about the work that you do to shut down abortion facilities at the Center for Client Safety. Yeah, so the Center for Client Safety is a national organization, and we help investigate and report health and safety and ethical violations that are occurring at these abortion facilities to the regulatory authorities. And then we work with those authorities to ensure that these abortion facilities are uh, being held accountable to the laws that are on the books. Yeah. And doing that, we've shut down two abortion facilities. We've stopped two from opening. Um, we've had a number of abortionist license suspended and even permanently banned from doing OBGYN care. Wow. Um, but predominantly, we are holding these abortion facilities accountable to basic medical health and safety standards. Yeah, important work that you're doing. And and some of the yeah. pro-life advocates in Charleston, you just heard, Missy, they shared that they believe this particular Planned Parenthood could be operating outside of the law. Um, have you heard similar concerns from pro-lifers in other parts of the country? This is something, especially after Roe was overturned, after Roe versus Wade was overturned, and the responsibility of regulating abortion went back to the states, this became a problem everywhere. Mm. We are constantly asking about how are these laws being enforced? It's not enough just to pass them. We're thankful for legislators who are working really hard to pass things like heartbeat bills or uh, gestational limits and other you know, basic standards for medical care, but it does not matter unless it's enforced. And this is an issue that we are seeing everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And as you heard also, we, we heard from the attorney general on this. He encouraged mm -hmm. folks to reach out to their local law enforcement. Can you talk to me more about the specific enforcement mechanisms in the South Carolina heartbeat law? Yeah, I think where a lot of the issues are coming are just a, a lack of understanding what the laws say and who is responsible. And so when I read this bill in particular, they actually put in three different enforcement mechanisms. So it's a criminal offense. It's a felony in South Carolina to mm. perform an abortion after cardiac activity um, is seen. 
Uh, it can be the the physician's license with the medical board can be disciplined. They actually put in there that has to be immediately revoked, which is very good enforceable language. And then on top of that, they actually put in uh, civil uh, the opportunity for the woman to hold the people responsible for that abortion um, uh, civilly responsible so she can sue them. Uh, but the issue that we come into is that a lot of the local law enforcement don't know that they, this is in their jurisdiction. We had an a, almost identical situation in another state where we had to go to local law enforcement and say, this was a criminal act, therefore, th this is your job. And so I think when it comes downstream of who is actually enforcing, there's just a lack of understanding. Yeah. Well, Missy, thank you for laying that out and for joining us on the show. Um, thanks for the work that you do. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. As the Supreme Court readies to hear oral argument regarding access to the chemical abortion pill, mifepristone, two key peer-reviewed studies that indicate these drugs are unsafe have been retracted. Initially published by Sage Journals, these studies were crucial in the determination by a federal judge in Texas to call for these pills to be taken off the market in April of 2023. It was that decision in part that led to the upcoming Supreme Court arguments that will determine future access to the pill. Sage journals claims that the studies had misleading presentations of data and because they were authored by pro-life doctors presented a conflict of interest. Meantime, the New York Times is promoting a new study by the University of California, San Francisco, that claims abortion drugs prescribed via telemedicine are safe. However, 85 women who participated suffered incomplete abortions. 81 women visited emergency departments, and at least one author of this study is affiliated with groups that want to expand access to abortion. The Lozier Institute says that in the past 15 years, the rate of emergency room visits after taking chemical abortion drugs has increased by 500%. They also report that at least 24 women have died after ingesting mifepristone. When we return, a behind-the-scenes look at how one maternity home is helping homeless, expectant mothers take the path towards a successful future. Out of the blue, President Biden's health department issued a regulation and said states cannot use this welfare money, this TANF money, for pregnancy crisis centers anymore. And we're going, what? Where did this come from? Plus, federal funding for pregnancy centers is in danger of being cut. How pro-life lawmakers are fighting back. We're following developments on Capitol Hill as some Republican lawmakers are working to keep funding for pregnancy centers after some Democrats pushed to remove this critical aid. The Temporary Assistance for Needy Families program, also known as TAMF, provides more than $16 billion in federal dollars to help low-income families and crisis pregnancy centers. Democrats and medical groups warn that these centers don't answer to state and health regulators. They also claim crisis pregnancy centers falsely advertise themselves as comprehensive health clinics. Right now, TAMF money helps about 2,700 centers across the nation, providing pregnancy tests, counseling, sonograms, and even diapers and strollers to women in need. 
they are a godsend, and they're saying that monies for for welfare, the TANF money, uh, is 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 not go. They're precluded from getting it. Uh, are you kidding? They're front line. When you think that Planned Parenthood gets over a million dollars a year, and they don't want pregnancy centers to get that same funding, that's pretty telling about those behind trying to stop this. Now, pro-life lawmakers are supporting a bill that seeks to protect TAMP funding for crisis pregnancy centers, which outnumber abortion clinics by about three to one nationwide. We do have a lot of structure, um, but we had a lot of classes to empower us. Last week, we introduced you to Honey Hathaway, who, as a pregnant single mother, found help and a place to call home at St. Clair's Maternity Home. St. Clair's provides a launching pad for many women in similar situations as Honey. We take you to that very home in Greenville, South Carolina now for a closer look at how it started and how they support new young mothers. I felt like the Lord was leading me to this place. Living between a tent in the woods and her car, Honey's fate could have been very different had she not met the compassionate people who run St. Clair's home. And she is just one of many. Since their founding in 2021, just three years ago, St. Clair's has aided more than 300 women. Right now, there are eight new mothers living under their roof, four with new babies, and four who are expecting. We have room for eight moms, and right now we are full, and I have a waiting list. They can stay until um, a year after the birth of their baby. So, but I would say the average stay is probably six months. When women come to live at St. Clair's, they're not just given a place to lay their head. They're also equipped with the skills they need to be good moms. When we arrived at the home, the moms were taking a class called Faith and Finance. We want to prepare moms to get on their feet, to be able to take care of themselves and their children. We also offer a variety of classes, um, mandatory classes that they have to attend. So um, Faith and Finance, we have um, getting ready for childbirth and then care for the child after. Um, we have, you know, a variety of cooking classes, nutrition classes, also uh, reminding them that they need to be applying for housing and getting them set up to be able to move out on their own. It all started when Claire Pizzuti, as a young girl, had a dream. Around 20 years ago, I had the first of three dreams, which showed exactly how active we need to be in the pro-life cause. So I woke up from this dream and I talked to my parents and we knew we had to do something. With this divine inspiration, Claire went to Valerie Berenkin, who is the current executive director at St. Clair's. After some years of discerning what might be done, God's providence made the path clear. When Claire was in the 12th grade, she came back to me and she was, we need to do something. Yeah, Claire, okay, fine. And um, the very next morning I was praying at the abortion clinic and somebody came to me and said, I want to give you $30,000 to start a maternity home. And I said, 
Okay, God, I'm listening. Since opening their doors, St. Clair's has collaborated with the Diocese of Charleston, of which they are a part, to maximize the resources they have to offer. Moms who come here will have everything they need to welcome their little one, from diapers to clothes to shampoo and laundry detergent. There's even a baby boutique on the premises, a cute, cozy nook where moms can bring their new little ones for some one-on-one -on -one time. So this room, I call it the heartbeat of the house because everything should start in prayer. And this is the place where we hope the moms come when they feel distressed or when we need extra help. Kathy Schmuggy, the family life director with the Diocese of Charleston, showed us around the chapel in the home. Thanks to community donations and local priests who visit and regularly celebrate mass, Jesus in the Eucharist dwells within the same walls as the mothers who find refuge here. I remember what things were donated by, by people who just, they looked at the list and they go, oh, I want to bring the picture of St. Michael or I want to do St. Clair. The success of St. Clair's is proof of that age-old saying, it takes a village. One unique blessing that the moms at St. Clair's have is guidance and mentorship from the Sisters of St. Michael the Archangel, an order founded in Nigeria. Two of the sisters live right down the road from St. Clair's. The spiritual growth of the women, mm. I mean, it was a struggle when we came in. Uh, some of them don't even know who God was or who he is, but at least some of them have begun to realize based on what they see. They see love around, which we try to uh, display where we can. Sister Teresa is a motherly presence in the lives of these women, some of whom have never experienced the love of a mother. She spoke about how she relies on her patron, St. Michael, to protect and guide everyone in residence. St. Michael the Archangel is the pillar of this home. We know him to be the warrior, you know, that you know, fought the evil one, the devil and cast him to, to hell. Here at the home, the girls have to earn their keep. When these moms come in, the judges come in and stay and eat and wake up now. The mission of this home is to help these women become uh, self-dependent. And it's not always easy. The first mom we had, she said she's not used to being told what to do. We had a struggle with her to say, okay, uh, keep your room clean, uh, prepare the dinner, do all sorts of things. You know, this is just to help them become responsible. The bottom line is, these chores and responsibilities, though they may seem small now, have an abundant impact on the lives of these young women, equipping them to be more self-sufficient. And the impact of the structure at St. Clair's does not go unnoticed by the moms who have completed their time there, like Honey. When we're coming out um, of lives without structure, it's kind of chaotic. It was different from what I was used to, but... Again, it was really needed. The leaders of St. Clair's hope that their work can be a model for local Catholic communities around the country. I knew that it was God's work and that he wanted the church involved. I think when I held the first baby <laughs> was the whole, the greatest joy. Thanks for joining us for this edition of EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. Before we go, we want to remind you that you can register for the National Eucharistic Congress through EWTN and receive a discount. Log on to EWTN.com forward slash Eucharist to sign up. See you next week.